Romans chapter 12 is where we've got to in our study. We're going to read the first eight verses. So if you can uh, take a copy of God's word and find your way there and follow with me as I, I read. Just as you're finding your way there, a reminder, Romans is a letter that was written to the church of God in Rome. And the Jewish contingent of that church had a number of years been fo- before been forced out by the, by the emperor. And because of that, the Gentile members of the church really had um, become the, the dominant force in the church. So the things that they considered to be important uh, in the matter of living for the Lord Jesus Christ it took a bit of priority over the Jews, the Jewish way, because they still wanted to hang on to some of the things of uh, Judaism. And when these Jews then returned, they found that it was a little bit more difficult than it had been before, and that created a bit of division there. When we get to it in chapter 14, and uh, we'll see that the Jews were, were looking down on the Gentile believers with a judgmental attitude because they weren't observing uh, the things that the Jews had observed throughout their history and they felt they were still important to honour God as they lived for the Lord Jesus. And the Gentile contingent, we're told, were looking at the Jews with contempt whenever they were the ones who were not eating certain foods and observing certain feast days and so on. And the Gentiles thought, this is it's not necessary. And they were looking with contempt. Those are strong words. To look with a judgmental attitude and a contemptible attitude at somebody those are strong things but Paul has been addressing both groups sometimes individually and together in his writing up to this point Paul now shifts massively in his letter for the previous 11 chapters he's been giving them theology and doctrine about the gospel what the gospel is all about because he knows that doctrine is what shapes the life of an individual disciple of the Lord Jesus in a church of God. Say it this way, devotion and duty flows from doctrine. Paul, usually in his writings, deals with doctrine first and then moves on to ethics, the way we think about things, and the actions that flow from that, from such doctrine. So doctrine is important because it drives how we live. So let's read Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. 
If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I'd like us to consider this under three little headings. First is the expectation, God's expectation of us in light of his mercies toward us. And those mercies are listed in the previous 11 chapters. Second is the evaluation. It's the personal responsibility each of us has to make a proper evaluation of ourselves as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly then is expression. It's our collective responsibility as those who are disciples gathered together in obedience to the Lord Jesus in churches of God to give expression to the ongoing work of Christ as it's seen in the life of a church of God. So we'll deal with that first heading first, the expectation, God's expectation of us in light of his mercies. Therefore, verse one, therefore, it's because of all that has gone before that the therefore is there. And it's because of that that Paul says, I urge you. Now he has an authority, does Paul, because he's an apostle. So his urging is a strong instruction, almost a command. That in light of everything that he has given in the previous 11 chapters, he has the authority now to say, given everything I've said, I am urging you strongly. Because of his confidence in what God has done and what God has enabled in him and in the people to whom he's addressing. With all that authority and confidence, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, those that are together in the family of God. By faith, those who have given their lives to God, they've actually been secured by God. He says to them, in view of God's mercy. Now, the NIV that I'm reading from doesn't quite get it exactly as it should be here. Because mercy is a plural word in the Greek. It says, it really should say, in view of the mercies of God, or by the mercies of God, plural. And those mercies have been listed by Paul in the previous 11 chapters. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but this recovers and covers some of all we've been through. That we are beloved of God. That we experience the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That we know redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That we are recipients of God's grace. That the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts. We have been saved from God's wrath. We know peace with God. Faith has been granted to us that we might see the Saviour and believe in him. We are united with Christ, our Saviour. We have power in the Holy Spirit. We have the hope of sharing in the glory of God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have reconciliation with God. We're justified. We have security in Christ. We have eternal life. We have freedom from the power of sin. We have guaranteed resurrection to look forward to. We have received adoption as sons of God. We have become, therefore, heirs of God. And God the Holy Spirit and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to intercede for us before 
the face of God the Father. And we have the unfailing promises of God that we can take hold of. That's not an exhaustive list of all of the mercies that are mentioned to us in Romans chapters 1 through to 11. But it's in light of those undeserved mercies of God that have come to us that Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The offer or presenting of your body, as other versions might translate that word, the, the presenting of yourself to God. It's a, it's a word that speaks of something you do now and it's continuing on. There's no limit to the duration or the completion. There's no, no idea of completion in this. You do it and you keep doing it. And the language, I think, hits us quite plainly, doesn't it? It's the whole of the person. It's the body in which life is lived that is to be presented or offered to God. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were live animals, usually live animals. If it was an animal sacrifice, let me qualify that. If the sacrifice was an animal sacrifice, it was living. And they would bring it and it would be killed. And the parts of that animal would be offered on the altar. It was a dead sacrifice. Had been living and it was dead. But we've already learned in Romans that we who were dead have been made alive. And because we are alive, we realize that we have put to death the old life so that we have a new life that we present then to God. Christ, in his sacrifice, fulfilled all of those Old Testament sacrifices. And it's because of his resurrection that we now live in the reality of lives that can be offered over to the one who has secured us for himself and the one who has brought all of the mercies of God to us. And it's in the power of his life that we present and offer ourselves as living sacrifices, our body given to him. The vehicle in which we live our lives given to him. Holy means to be set apart to God and in everything that we do. And pleasing, of course, you understand this, means that giving God the pleasure of seeing the, the results of his saving work and his mercies in our experience, the eternal work of grace and mercy, um, is a pleasure to God whenever we would do this for him. Just a little thing to think over here. In the context of this letter written to a church that was divided, and Paul is appealing for them, having taught them the gospel, to bring them together in their unity of service. In the Greek language that sits behind this, bodies is plural. You see this. Um, it says, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice. And sacrifice is singular. It's not that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which would, in a sense, really drive home the point that Paul was addressing each individual in the church. What I'm getting at here is there's a possibility here that he's appealing to all of the church, all of you individually. Offer your bodies together as a living sacrifice. One sacrifice of lives and bodies that are given to him. That a church would be viewed as a sacrifice to God together. Think that one through. See what you, you think of it. 
He goes on to say this is your true and proper worship. Other versions might say it's your spiritual service of worship. That's because the Greek word that's used there is the word logikos, which really we get the word logical from. And logical fits, doesn't it? Paul's saying, in view of the mercies of God, it's logical, maybe in two senses here. It's logical that we are to be living spiritual sacrifices rather than dead physical ones. Or that we are to be a living spiritual sacrifice together rather than a dead physical one. Or secondly, it's logical in the sense that it's the proper, it's the only proper response to all that God has done for us as revealed in his mercies to us. And worship here in the Greek, this logical, true and proper worship, this worship is is a word that really speaks of the worship that was involved in, in the temple, in the tabernacle. People who were part of God's priestly um, office, who would have given their lives entirely to the service there. That's the sense of this word worship. It's a life that's given over to God. And that's what Paul is appealing for. It's whole life worship. And verse 2 then, as we move on, sits as a, alongside verse 1, almost as an explainer as to how to properly do what is described in verse 1. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Conform means to, on the outward appearance, look like something else. Just like jelly in a mould takes on the shape of the environment or the container in which it lives. So we take on the shape, in an outward sense, of that container or environment in which we live. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Other Bible versions would say the, this age. So it's the ideas and the value system of this world that are contrary to God because in some sense they're under the power of the evil one. 1 John 5 and 19, he says there, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the world system is set against the things of God, but we're not to be conformed to that. Certainly not any longer as those who by the mercies of God have come into all the blessings of God and then are empowered to live for God. But we're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, our minds. Metamorphosis, that's the word. That change of outward appearance that really reflects the inner reality. And that's what Paul is driving at here. Through all the mercies that he's listed, look at what God has done for you in the inner person that you are. Now live that out. Don't live as if you're constrained and shaped by the world around you. It's the transforming that comes by the renewing of the mind. The mind in the Bible is the central control system. And Paul is really saying, you saturate your mind. In the truth of God rather than the lies of the world. Satan is the father of lies. The world system is full of truth to some degree. A lot of half-truth and a lot of lies. Because a half-truth is a lie. But we're to saturate our minds in the truth of God that he's given to us in his word. And when we do that, then that mind that is 
shaped by that then helps to transform the outward appearance, the living of the person. Because our mind determines our lifestyle and our life direction. I think the biggest battle for the believer is the battle for the mind. Because we live in a world that is set against God, but we are, in a sense, this little oasis of God's goodness. And it would be constrained by the world, but God wants us to live that goodness out. The renewing process comes through active placing of the mind in and on the truth of God at all times. That's where memorization and frequent reading and so on comes to us. And we've no excuse today. And people, when this was written, would have had better memories to remember things because that was the way they learned. We have got gradually over time memories that have become um, less um, powerful because it's so easy to just go and find the information somewhere usually using Google, which is dangerous in itself. But you know the, what I'm getting at here. We're to be saturated in the things of God, and we have this on devices. And if we're finding ourselves um, at times shaping with the world, and we use our device even to look at the things of the world, and we know that at the same time on that same device are the things of God, the truth of God, then you know the battle that can come with that. Let's be in the truth of God. As often as we can be. Speaking of devices. This renewing of the mind. Maybe some of you um, have set your, your devices to do the automatic update thing. And it says it does it while you're asleep. If, if your device is plugged in. Do you know that one? And then you wish you'd never done No. Uh, normally it's, it's a good update to your system. Because it provides extra security and so on. And gives you a freshness. It's almost the same thing as an illustration isn't it? You saturate yourself in the things of God and there's this new updating of the system that God has given to us. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The renewing of the mind in God's truth, we are able to see those things in everyday life that are good, pleasing and perfect that conform to God's will. God's will is perfect. This is not a description of God's will as being good, pleasing and perfect. But it's a description of the things that we would do and choose to do that are good, pleasing and perfect. Because that conforms with God's perfect will. As with any new practice, it takes time, doesn't it, to learn things that then become second nature, as we would say, or automatic. Having taken Pip out now a couple of times for driving lessons, I realise the amount of, well, the years that have passed of repeatedly doing the same thing mean that uh, I have to now be aware of the things that I've been doing automatically to give instruction, poor instruction to Pippa, because she's learning them for the first time. God wants us to get to that stage where through um, experience and saturation in his truth, that we do things almost automatically i'm not saying that we switch off our minds because that's not what paul is saying but it's saying that the mind is so saturated by the things of god that it is an automatic thing to choose that which is good and pleasing and perfect this is god's expectation of us in light of his mercies let's move on to evaluation and the next two sections are short 
because I think the core is there in those first two verses. And out of that then flows the rest. So evaluation. Paul then moves on to our personal responsibility as those in a church community to make proper evaluation of ourselves. He says, for by the grace given me in verse 3, I say to every one of you, the grace given me. If you go back and look at Romans 1 verse 5, Paul there says, by himself and the apostles, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And you go to verse or chapter 15 and verse 15, he says a similar thing about the grace given him to be a minister to the Gentiles, that he might offer the Gentiles as a sacrifice to God. Interesting link there for you to follow through. Paul was saying that by the grace given to him, I say to every one of you, there's his authority. And he was saying that the grace that had come into his experience had completely transformed his life and we know this from Paul's story. The renewing of his mind entirely. And that grace received was lived out as he recognised the responsibility that was on him. And God's expectation that was on him. He said, for the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. So it's a command. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each. It's a difficult sentence that. It's difficult in the Greek and that's why if you read a variety of Bible versions you'll see a variety in there. What it's really getting at is the, the biggest sin problem I think we all have which is pride. And thinking that we're bigger and better than others and bigger and better than God. I think what the, the text is saying is we make we should make a proper evaluation of ourselves according to faith that God has given us as those who have received the capacity from him to have faith in the Lord Jesus as Saviour. We then have been given the capacity to continue to trust him. That's faith ongoing, to trust that God will do something in us and through us that is not of our own power but is from his. The New Living Translation puts it this way, which I think is helpful. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. What's it saying? It's saying that we don't measure ourselves from a worldly perspective or a human perspective, but rather we would measure ourselves against what? Faith, which is trusting God. So we measure ourselves from that and that gives us sober judgment then. We measure ourselves from God's standard rather than against one another. Verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So Paul then brings it to the example of the body. And he's I don't think he's speaking here about the church, the body of Christ, that he, that he outlines in teaching elsewhere, in Ephesians, for example. But he's talking here about the unity that is to be seen in a church of God, a local church of God, this church of God in Rome, where the individuals will give their bodies, that together they would be a sacrifice to God. There would be this unity of service in that group that, was, that is illustrated by the human body in its functioning. Now, the human body doesn't sit there and measure 
itself against another part of the body. You, you get that, and Paul uses that for that reason. And the body is a, is a complete unit that functions without any questioning, even when part of it is sore. In Christ, that's vital. It's in Christ we're united to Christ, and it's in Christ that we are united in service in a way that helps us to express then what it is that God has done for us. So we need to evaluate ourselves not against each other, but evaluate ourselves against God's standard, which really is God's word. And our faith brings us back to God's word. So encouragement on this point is to be in the word of God for the renewing of the mind that we might be transformed, that that would continue to give us the impetus to offer all of our lives to God for his glory and for the good of other people, of course. And in doing that, then we evaluate ourselves against what we read in God's word. That's faith. We're putting into practice here the things that we see. And I see something that God says, I need to live that way. That's the measure. And then out of this comes then the expression. Our collective responsibility then as a, as a body, organism, as a group together in a church of God to give expression to the ongoing work of Christ. Christ has returned to the right hand of the Father, but he's not inactive. Christ is still active. We've already been told in Romans that he intercedes on our behalf. He does that for us. He operates as great priest over the house of God. We learn that from other places. He is active, but he is active through those that are then described by Paul elsewhere as the church, the body of Christ. He is active through us. And that should be seen in the local church of God. Verse 6, we have different gifts. Notice the repeat of this phrase, according to the grace given to each of us. Links back up to what Paul said. Do you remember in verse 3, by the grace given to me, that grace turned his life around and put him into active service. He lived up to the expectation that God had of him. He says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So we've all been given this grace that would turn us around and empower us to give our lives for him. Paul's life was completely consumed with the things of God. He was consumed also with the churches of God. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, he lists all of the, the difficulties and the strains and might say stresses that he feels in his life of service and he says apart from such external things there is the daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches he had this concern for the churches because he knew that churches were the means by which the ongoing work of God the ongoing work of Christ would be seen and experienced in this world so same for us individually and then together as a as a church that God has in his grace brought us to himself. He's given us gifts and power to exercise those gifts that are listed for the glory of God and to express the ongoing work of God in this world. Just like a body has different parts that do their functions, so Paul says we all have different functions. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith serving of serve and so on we're not getting into the detail here what i just want to say on this is the focus is not on the gifts themselves that's not an exhaustive list 
So we're not to get caught up about those. And just by the way, prophesying means to speak the revealed truth of God to others. That's what that means. Um, what my point here is that the focus is not on the gifts themselves. The, rather, it's on the focus is on the proper use of those gifts in a church of God. And in so doing, that gives expression to the work of God that is ongoing through his people. I would just say in summary that when Paul looks at these gifts as example seven of them, and he says, look, these are different gifts, but you're all to work together. There's maybe something of a summary we can take from these. And because it's not exhaustive, then we'd be careful with this. But of course, he's just he's trying to make the point. You all do the things that the grace of God has turned you around and God expects of you. You put it into practice because God empowers you to do it. People who have a resolute faith, who have a desire to serve, who want to learn and to teach others, who want to be encouragers of others, who want to be generous, who want to be diligent in their service, and to do all of this with cheerfulness. It's maybe just a, a quick summary of all of that. These are attributes that all of us can demonstrate by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means by gifts. Something that is given to us. That is by the decision of God. Given by the Holy Spirit and empowered by him. That we might live it out. It's not natural talents here that's in view. But something given by God. That we would use in unity of function with others. In such a way that the sacrifice of a church of God would please God because in that united service of everyone fulfilling their function by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit it gives expression to the glory of who God is so this portion is about what God expects of us and he doesn't leave us to ourselves he's given us the Holy Spirit to live up to his expectations it requires a proper evaluation of ourselves according to our faith our faith is based in the word of God and the truth of God and it results doesn't it in the expression of the ongoing work of Christ the ongoing work of God as it's seen in the New Testament church of God let's have a prayer together